I pray that you hear what is said today. Okay? In my heart of hearts, I believe we are very, very, very close to the second coming. Okay? And I, and I know that every day you get a little closer, but I also know that you're a heartbeat away. And I also know the condition of the church. I look at the church in Castle Rock right now, and you could almost say it makes Corinth look conservative. I know that I talk to brothers and sisters around our country, and it's not just Castle Rock. It's, uh, it's, it's pretty impressive. And yet, we have wonderful ministries with Pastor Philip, with Pastor Paul, uh, with the, the Russian brothers and sisters, Ilya and Azerbaijan. Some of the stuff that is going on there just makes you smile all over yourself. But if you're truly honest with yourself, when Jesus set the disciples out and said, you will take my gospel first to Samaria, Galilee, Judah, and even to the ends of the earth. When that sucker reached L.A., that's the ends of the earth from the Middle East. Okay? And now it's the gathering of the elect. I read a little story and I thought it was very appropriate and I kind of look at it as the condition of the church. Okay? And it was about a pilot. And he came over the intercom for the passengers and he says, I have good news and I have bad news. The bad news is I've lost all of our instrumentation and we have no idea where we are. But the good news is, is we have a strong tailwind and are making good time. I'm afraid that's what the church is. They have no idea where they're going, but they are making very good time. If you would please turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? I trust that you will realize that we ourselves do not fail the test. Father, I have beseeched your throne all week on behalf of these people. And Father, those who will listen on the internet. Father, the deception is great. Beyond anything that I ever thought was possible. And yet, my King, you are faithful. Father, don't let anybody walk out of here deceived today. Not one, please, I beg you. To you, my Lord and Savior. Amen. In the context that we are looking at, it began over in verse 20 of chapter 12. And it's dealing with what I call the process of sanctification. We are at step four. The first step was repentance. The second step was discipline. The third step was biblical authority. And now we're looking at something that is very crucial today. We had it come up in the news. Did you hear it this week? The Pope and Trump. And you know what everybody was screaming about? How could he say that without knowing his heart? I think I've put that to rest, haven't I? 
Okay? Now, I would disagree with his assertion that because he wants to build a wall means he's not a Christian. I have other things. Okay? But I heard that, and I thought, that's the death of the church. Right there. The church is trying its best to be like the world. That was what was going on in Corinth. Except Corinth was a city. I'm looking at a nation of quote-unquote evangelicals. I was looking at some of the results that came out of South Carolina. Trump won and he carried all the evangelicals. And they asked the evangelicals and less than 8% agreed with him. Why did you vote for him? Does he have the same concerns that you do? No. And I'm sitting there going, but see, that's the condition of the church. That ain't Trump. That's the condition of the church. Okay? And here's the reason that I believe that it's in this condition. He says it right there. Test yourselves to see if you're of the faith. We don't do that. I went through this last week. I said a prayer. I must be saved. I was baptized. I must be saved. I'm in a church. I must be saved. You know what? I heard a message once and the hair stood up on the back of my neck. I must be saved. I heard a message the other day and I cried. I must be saved. I have a form of righteousness that everybody sees and commends me on. I must be saved. And yet none of those. And I I can go on. I could do several months of messages that people think they must be saved. What is the mark of genuine saving faith? If you were going to do a spiritual inventory, okay, I, I listen, I've prayed for you all week. You have to do this to yourself. You can't say, honey, do you think I'm saved? Or child, I know you're not. No, <laughs> okay. You have to do it. You have to do it. What is the signs of true saving faith? You're not going to believe this, but I managed to get it into five points. Okay, so let's get after it. Real faith that saves. Okay, I couldn't think of another word, but I had to come up with one. So here it comes. It's penitent. 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 Well, what the heck is that? I thought you'd never ask. So, I'll show you what it is. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 3. I'm going to say these slow. You can write them in the front of your Bible so you'll know and you can keep testing yourself as the days go on. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That word poor there, there's three words in the Greek for poor. One is working poor. Okay. That's, that's kind of like a day laborer. Two is someone who is a beggar. 
Okay. Third one is the guy who is crippled laying under the rich man's table waiting for crumbs to fall off the table. Which word do you suppose is used there? The guy laying under the table waiting for the crumbs to fall. Now that's poor. All right. But blessed is he. Why? It's the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Let me ask you a question. Does your sin make you sick? When you came to salvation, were you in such a position that you realized you had nothing? And you hoped that God would drop a crumb? That's penitence. It's penitence. True faith produces an overwhelming sense of sinfulness. It it should run over you like a train. It should be something that just causes you disgust. Now listen, I'm not talking about everybody else's sin. I'm talking your own personal sin. It will cause believers to mourn over their sin. Verse 4 says, blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. Jesus ain't talking about people who are standing in lines at funerals. He's talking about redemption. Your sin should cause you to mourn. Okay? Not me to mourn. You to mourn. I got enough sin in my daily prayers to condemn humanity. But true saving faith is penitent. It takes a self-evaluation. John Calvin called it worm theology. This is what drives me nuts. How in the world can you lay at the edge of a table waiting for a crumb to fall and have pride? How do you do that? What do you bring to the table? That is a person who has never looked at their sin. It's a person who says, well, let's see. Do I want to go to heaven or I want to go to hell? I think I'll go to heaven. I'll say a prayer. I remember when I came to salvation, I had been in public housing. And when I got out, I found a church. And all I knew about Christianity was you needed to be baptized. I'd gotten out on a Tuesday and I found a church on a Wednesday. I went in and asked to speak to the pastor. The pastor was there and I said, I got to be baptized. And he says, well, you know, dude. And I says, listen, if you don't want to baptize me, I'll go find somebody who will. Because I wasn't sure I was going to get a second chance. Because my sin had made me sick. It was disgusting. Which takes me to verse 5. Blessed are the gentle and they shall inherit the earth. Because when you mourn over your sin because you are poor of spirit, it will keep you humble. How in the world can a Christian have pride? To acknowledge it, to confess it. Let me give you a man after God's own heart, okay? He was an adulterer and a murderer. 
But he was a man after God's own heart. Here's what he says in Psalm 32, verse 5, King David. I acknowledge my sin to you. Let me ask you a question. You ever done that? I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. I see people walking around feeling guilty. What happened? How can you be guilty? I thought he forgave you. Oh, perhaps you haven't acknowledged it. Or perhaps it's just a little one. I didn't have a big one. It is those who confess their sins who will obtain mercy. Those who confess their sins who will obtain forgiveness. You can see that in Proverbs chapter 28 verse 13. And 2 Samuel chapter 12 verse 13. And chapter 24 verse 10. Okay. God forgave David of his sins. And when he had Uriah murdered and married Bathsheba because she was already with child. He says against you and you only Lord have I sinned. Now Uriah might argue that. But you see what I'm trying to get at? You don't see that today, people. You do not see people poor in spirit mourning over their sin. It's like the Russian pastor told me, he says, we pray for you in America. In America, you add Christ to your life. In Russia, Christ is life. And we do that now. If you don't believe me, ask yourself this simple question. How content are you? Simple question. How content are you? Because if he doesn't give you anything ever but eternal life, how content are you? You're only going to get a resurrected body. How content are you? You're only going to live in absolute sinlessness. How content are you? The Apostle John brings this up in 1 John chapter 1. Now, I'm wanting each and every one of you that hears this to evaluate it. All right? 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 through 10. 1, 7 through 10. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light... We have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and the word is not in us. You have to say it's a sin. It's not the culture. It's not society. It's not my childhood upbringing. It's not my low self-esteem. 
It's sin. Those who refuse to turn from their sin give evidence that they have not experienced the transforming that takes place at salvation. Now listen, it doesn't mean we don't sin. But when we sin, if we confess it, basically what that means is, I agree, Lord, this is sin. Move away from it. Okay? Listen, the Apostle Paul understood this. In Romans chapter 7. Paul expressed, after his conversion, he expressed the saints' normal attitude towards sin. Okay, What is my attitude towards my sin? Do I ignore it? Call it something else. Perhaps I can sway myself into saying it's not really sin. Here's what the Apostle Paul says, verse 24 of chapter 7. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? You ever thought about that? Why are we so obsessed with the world? Why aren't we obsessed with heaven? Why aren't we obsessed with the things above? Because that means that my sin... It's pleasurable. But see, I don't do the big sins. I'm not murdering. I'm not committing armed robbery. I'm just doing some of the little sins. Coveting. Greed. Gluttony. Just little bitty things. They're not that big a deal. It's one of the annoying things to me when I see an overweight preacher. What are you saying? I know, I sit too much. Then stand up and read. I found myself walking around reading every once in a while. And I'm glad nobody sees me because occasionally I forgot where the wall was. But it has a tendency to remind me that I'm right here. (laughs) How about you? Okay. These are things that I want you to think about, brothers and sisters. Do you realize that what I'm sharing with you right now has eternal consequences? This isn't some fire and brimstone preacher. I'm concerned about your eternal destination. And don't sit there and look at me. Listen, if you get brave enough to come and ask me, be brave enough to receive the answer. Because I've known a lot of you for a long time. True believers desire an overwhelming passion. It is the greatest desires in their soul to be pure and to be righteous. If you don't have that, you've never stepped into penitence. At the same time that I desire that we should desire righteousness and purity, we recognize that there's a powerful force of sin in our very nature that is still at work because we have not yet been glorified. 
We are not yet there. We know that what is wrong is not a lack of self-esteem. It has nothing to do with mistreatment by other people. It has nothing to do with a childhood trauma. We know that it's sin. We know that it is our sin. And yet we long. Romans 7 says, I do the things that I don't want to do. What a wretched man I am. I know the battle, but the desire because of a penitent heart, the desire because I was a beggar in spirit, the desire because I mourn over my sin is that I desire to be pure and righteous. Too many in the body of Christ do not have a true hatred of their fallenness. True believers, true saving faith, hate their fallenness because it dishonors the God whom they love and they serve. That's one. Penitence. Okay? Two. Genuine faith. A mark of genuine faith is a desire for righteousness. A desire for righteousness. Now, be real careful about this one because we like to put our own standard of righteousness. That is not what this means. It is God's standard of righteousness. Matthew's Gospel again, chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So a true saving faith has a desire for righteousness. Now listen, I'm going to give you something. I want you to chew on it a minute. Okay? Those that are truly of the faith. Now think about this for a second. Those who have true saving faith are not turned from sin. What? Can he say that? They're not. But they are attracted to righteousness. One of the things that you can look at biblically, and if you're honest with your own life, anything God asks you to forsake, he replaces. Okay, now what I want you to think about this, the mark of true righteousness, this desire for righteousness... When I say true are not turned from sin, but attracted to righteousness, there's a reason that I say it that way. Because this is internal. This is internal. It's, it's not external. Jesus in this same chapter, verse 20, says, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom. And to the public, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous men on the planet. It's internal, people. It's internal. It's not external. Too many today live in external righteousness. That's why people can get mad at me and say, well, he's got a sleeveless t-shirt on. 
And that is unholy where? He rides a motorcycle without a helmet. Okay, because see, now everybody all of a sudden, that woman's wearing pants. I mean, we get into these weird things that we all of a sudden, well, that just don't sound right. That don't look right. Well, to you. But true righteousness is internal. I'll show you in case you were wondering. External righteousness. Okay. Does not murder. Okay. Internal righteousness does not hate. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, 21 and following. You have heard the ancients were told, you shall not commit a murder. And whoever commits murder is liable to the court. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to fiery hell. See the difference? External righteousness says, do not commit adultery. Internal righteousness, verses 27 and 28 says, I have heard, you have heard that it is said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's internal. It's internal External righteousness avoids cleverly false vows. Okay? Don't think politicians. <laughs> okay? But they still will deceive you. They just, they're the ones who came up with the idea of the fine print. Okay? Internal righteousness does not Lie, verses 33 and following. Again, you have heard the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows before the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven or by the throne of God or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet or by Jerusalem, which is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be, yes is yes or no is no. Anything beyond that is of evil. That's internal righteousness. External righteousness limits itself in its vengeance according to the law. Internal righteousness does not retaliate at all. Verses 38 and following. You have heard said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist an evil person. But whoever slaps your right cheek, turn the other to him also. Anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your coat too. Whoever forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it is said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. 
That's the next one. You do not retaliate. External loves its friends, hates its enemies. I remember when uh, Pastor Philip called. Pastor Philip has managed to reach some Taliban with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he asked me, he says, I think we should begin praying for Osama bin Laden. What would happen if bin Laden comes to salvation? What an impact on Islam he would have. But we never think about these things. Internal loves its friends and loves its enemies. 43 and 47. You have heard, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Even the tax collectors. External righteousness parades itself before men. Chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward with your Father in heaven. Internal longs to have a perfect life as their Father in heaven is perfect. Chapter 5, verse 48. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your Father is perfect. See, brothers and sisters, that's genuine faith. Real, true, saving faith seeks to abstain from wickedness. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 19. I don't even want to look like I'm doing something wrong. Listen, while the false profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Titus chapter 1 verse 16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him. Do you realize your action tells me what you think of your God? Back to 1 John, chapter 2, verse 29. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. I've shown you what righteousness is. It's internal. It's not external. Chapter 3 of 1 John, 5 to 7. You know that He appeared in order to take away the sins, and in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him, the word abide means remains in Him, sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Verse 10. By this, now listen to what He says. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother. Genuine saving faith. Okay, loves his brother. Do you know who your brother is? Anyone that's not you. 
Okay? Because that was a big thing with the Jews. Well, let me define... They've got almost 150 pages in the Mishnah describing who your brother is. Genuine saving faith produces a deep longing to obey God from the heart. Why? It started because I was a beggar in spirit. And I mourned my sin. Okay, thirdly, third mark of real saving faith is the submission to divine authority. To divine authority. I was reading an article this week. A group in France had taken a Bible and dressed it up to look like the Koran. And they wanted people to read it because there's this anti-Muslim thing going on in France right now because of the Paris shooting. And so they went through and they said that the reason the people don't like the Muslims is that their teachings won't fit Western culture. And so they held this book out and they said, well, read this verse from the Koran. And it says, I will not have a woman teach over a man. That won't fit in Western culture. What is divine authority? I will not have you marry an unbeliever. See, that won't fit Western culture. But that's divine authority. Listen, I have seen some of the greatest heartache and pain imaginable to man when an unbeliever and a believer get married. You can't serve two masters. You can't. You'll hate the one and love the other. I have, I have never seen such grief and heartache in my entire life. You two young ladies, you better make sure. You better know emphatically when you get ready to take that vow that that man's righteous. Okay? Or you're going to have to deal with me. I've known you too long to let you screw this thing up. <laughs> but it's true. We all look at it and we think, well, it's not. But we love each other. He loves a different God. You can't love each other. I do not have women teach over men. Why? They act like Eve. I, it is, this isn't rocket science. He's just saying, you know what? I've been around longer than you. I know better. I mean, it's that simple. I, am I submitted to divine authority? Because let me tell you something. Sinners rebel against God. They rebel against divine authority. Saints are willing servants. They're willing. They want to serve. This is a passion. I don't have to be told to serve. I'm doing it because God put me here for such a time as this. That should be the passion of every one of us in this room. Luke's Gospel, chapter 14. 
text very familiar to many of us. But I think sometimes we forget. Beginning in verse 25 through 35. Now large crowds were going along with him. This is when he's doing all the tricks. And he turned and said to them. Think about this. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Did you get that? Now, I've heard this. I've watched some spiritual gymnastics that says, well, you can be saved and not be a disciple. And I said, where do you see that? It's impossible. It's impossible. How many of us right now try to balance our family lives, our work lives, our kids' lives, and all the extracurriculars and some time with God? If you're trying to do that, I'm going to ask you one question. You have true saving faith? My Bible says, if I seek his kingdom, his righteousness, what happens? All things are added unto me. Now think about that. People say, well, you're, you're becoming obsessed with this God. Not enough. Not enough. I fall so far short. Go on. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Now, I want to ask you a question. When you come to salvation, did the guy or lady or whatever drew you say, you ready to count this cost? Because I guarantee you, none of you, when you stepped into salvation, realized what it was going to cost you. Because nobody talks about it because we're saved by grace. That's why Paul says, oh, you're not your own. You've been bought and paid for with a price. That's why he says you were a slave to sin. Now you're a slave to. But why are we slaves to our jobs? Why are we slaves to our spouse? Why are we slaves to our kids? Why are we slaves to education? Why are we, why do we chase everything except God? When you get short of time, who gets cheated? You or God? Do I realize what submission to vine authority really means? Otherwise, when he lays the foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe begin to ridicule. Saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and consider whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to conquer the one coming against him with 20,000. Or else, while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for peace terms. So then, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. Therefore, salt is good. And even if salt becomes tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has an ear, let him hear. 
Let me tell you something. I don't know about you guys. That sounds kind of serious to me. Sounds kind of serious to me. Another illustration of this comes out of Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. Sixteen through twenty-two. Someone came to him, him is Jesus, and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do to obtain eternal life? And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. Then he said to him, Which ones? Sounds like us, doesn't it? Which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not commit a murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man, all these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, if you wish to complete, go and sell all of your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Young man heard this statement. And he went away grieving because he owned much property. Listen, brothers and sisters. Told you about the monkeys that they used to catch down in Colombia. Okay. And you just put something shiny in a jar that they can get their hand down in. And they'll grab a hold of that thing that's shiny. And they won't let go of it so they won't let their hand come back out of the hole. The only way you can get them to let go of that shiny thing is if there's another shiny thing in another jar. And then they'll let go of that shiny thing and they'll reach over and reach in and they'll grab that other shiny thing. But again, they're caught by the hand. And they go through and they hit them with a stick and kill them and then serve them up as a delicacy. Is that not us? Is that on us? I think about the number of people that I have watched who go through a divorce and there was a shiny thing. I've got this shiny thing I got a hold of right here, but this one's shinier. So I'm going to reach over here and grab this shiny thing. Okay, and then I'll let go of that shiny thing. And you know what? You'll realize eventually that shiny thing ain't a shiny thing either. And you'll grab a hold of something else and you'll grab a hold of something else. And Christ says, you got to give all that up. I'm the shiny thing. And you need to get a hold of me with both hands and hold on tight. And you know what? There's too many who don't. Who don't. Can you honestly say to yourselves, because I'm asking you to inventory your own spirituality. Can you honestly say to yourself, I'll give it all up for him. I'll give it all up for him. All of it. Can you? I sold a fishing boat. Nice fishing boat. I loved that fishing boat. And you know, it was a shiny fishing boat. Red's metallic. It was nice. Depth gauge on it. Pedestal seat front and back. Walk through bow. 115 horse Evinrude. Little slim bottom. I could almost go up a creek with it. That house... In Zeminka, they needed to change the inside of it. 
I sold my boat so I could send them the money to fix that. You guys gave too. But I sold my shiny fishing boat. Why? Are you willing to give it up? Because you know, he replaced it. He got me a Harley. No. <laughs> and if he wants that, he can have it too. Make me an offer. Okay? But look at us. Look at us today. All the things that we're attracted to. Distracted to. At salvation, no one understands the degree of submission that is required. Let me ask you a question. What is the value to you of God in heaven? What is it worth to you? You ever thought of that? But we're saved by grace, fool. Nope. You've been bought with a price. How valuable is heaven and God to you? Any cost? Can you before God right now say any cost? I don't care what you want. You can have it. True faith will submit to his will whatever may unfold for them. Okay? Fourthly, genuine faith is marked by obedience. Obedience. We like that word, don't we? Obey. It's like pig Latin or something. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, will enter. You know, I have people on a pretty regular basis come up and say, I just don't know what God's will is. And, it's, and I said, it's that one in the Bible that says, this is God's will for you. Okay? It's, you know, it's... I never really had problems finding it. Verse 22 through 27. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See what they're disobedient to? Divine authority. Therefore, anyone who hears the words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on a rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it was founded on a rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came, the floods came, the winds blew and slammed against the house, and it fell, and great was its fall. Those who professed faith, if you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Let me ask you a question. Do you remain in his word? Do you always go back and say, what does he think about this? I'm getting ready to make a decision. What does God think about it? Because that will tell you how important God is in your life. 
That will tell you how important heaven is in your life. In a, a section, one of my favorite section of Holy Writ is, is called the Upper Room Discourse. This is when John describes it. Jesus is giving the last view before his murder. Okay. He instills what we call the Lord's table. He's having the Passover with his disciples. There's a great, pretty good group there, about 500. I actually was in a room that they believed that it was uh, where the upper room discourse, and it's upper room. I mean, it's, (laughs) their stairs are about that wide (laughs) and ain't got no handrails. And you're like, well, I hope this works out all right. (laughs) So, but it's one of my favorite places. And in this part of this upper room discourse, he explains to him that he's going to be betrayed. Judas takes off. He explains the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is to pay the penalty of sin and all the rest of it. But some important things are here because if something is repeated multiple times in scriptures, I'm sitting there thinking, uh, must be important. Chapter 14 is part of the upper room discourse. Verse 15. If you love me. You will keep my commandments. Okay? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay? You know what that means? Women will not teach over men. You will not be unequally yoked to an unbeliever. You want me to give you some more? You will keep commandments. I don't even have to argue about these. You will keep my commands. Verse 23 and 24. Jesus answered to him and said to him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my father will love, the, love him and he will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. Okay. In chapter 15, it's still in the upper room, goes through chapter 17. Chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Seems kind of straightforward to me. I don't think you need to be a... I mean, you can get into the argument, well, there's a difference between being saved and being a disciple. Well, I got news for you. The Great Commission doesn't say go out and make saved people. It says, go out and make disciples. Now, if it is that important, then I also know that John repeats this. John is the one writing the room. He was in the upper room with Jesus when Jesus is saying this. Then he writes in 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, the same thing. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 24, the same thing. And then in John, 1 John chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, guess what? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Women, why are you to submit to your husband? As unto Christ. And you know what? I've seen women who do that. They're contentious. And they're contentious to their Lord. I mean, if I had a nickel for every time a woman come up to me and said, you know, I'm submitted to my husband. And I said, does he know that? You should tell him. I'm not interested. 
Those whose faith is real. What do you do with this one? All of you. Prove doers of the word, not merely hearers who delude themselves. That's James 1.22. Can people look at you and say, you are a doer of the word? Or just a hearer? So, now that everybody's so excited and happy of being here this day, I'll give you the fifth one. The mark of genuine faith. We all know this one, right? You will know them by their love for God and their love for others. I have to throw in some of my Calvinistic stuff, so... Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God. To those who are called to His purpose. For those He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So that He would be the firstborn of many brethren. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 18 says, We behold with unveiled faces as in a mirror. Are being transformed from what? Glory to glory through the Spirit. Let me ask you a question. When people look at you, do they see a reflection of Jesus Christ? Because a reflection of Jesus Christ is the love of God has been poured into my heart. By the Spirit of the living God, Romans 5. James chapter 2, verse 5. God has promised His kingdom to those who love Him. 1 Corinthians 2, 9 says the same thing. 1 John chapter 5 says this in verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God. We love God and observe His commandments. Okay. Now contrast that. Chapter 5 of John's Gospels. John chapter 8 verse 42. They do not have the love of God in them. Why? They love themselves. See that's. You know. You two single ladies. The reason that I point this out is. If you marry an unbeliever. They love themselves. And they like what you're going to do for them. And it's that simple. They do not have the love of God in them. And a child of God has the love of God and therefore gives the love as God gave it to you. Because you started out as a beggar in spirit. And you mourned over your sin. And yet, believers prove themselves because of their love for God. Unbelievers, and this is, gosh, this is so easy to spot. I don't, I don't understand why people think they can pull this off. You know how the easiest way to spot an unbeliever? I want you to think about these words. Okay. How do you, I, I told you that a believer you can spot because they have a love of God and people. 
You adulteress, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy to God. Do you get that? Do I need to parse that in any way? If you're a friend with the world, James says you're an adulterer. And you are. You're part of the bride of Christ. And if you're hanging out with the world, you're cheating on Christ. You can also see that in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He uses a phrase here that's amazing to me. Friend of the world. A friend of the world. Love for other believers characterize those of genuine faith. Why? How can you love God and not love other believers? Daggone, you got to spend eternity with them. You might want to at least get to like them. First John 3.14 We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Okay, can anybody see the wiggle room in that? Can anybody see the loophole in that? If you have a love for the brethren, guess what? You've passed into life. If you do not have a love for the brethren, guess what? You're still dead in your sin. First John chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, through 9, 11. The one who says he's in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother and is in the darkness walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes, i.e. the illustration of we've lost all of our controls, we don't know where we're at, but we have a great tailwind and are making great time. False faith is marked by a lack of love. Okay, give you five. Let me share with you something. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. It's not the best out of five. It has to be all five. True spiritual inventory does not focus on external behavior. It does not focus on some religious activity. There are too many in the body of Christ right now who believe that that does. Okay? True faith has a focus on the internal attitude of the heart. Now listen, I want to be specific about this. I don't need a bunch of people running around trying to point out people's attitudes of their heart. You need to do that to yourself before a holy God who's omnipresent. Okay? Here's your warning. To the angel of the church in Sardis, write, 
He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen the things that remain, which are about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. That's a church. Revelations 3.1. Listen, that's a warning to all people who would ever profess faith, but do not possess faith. Listen, no amount of resolve, no amount of outward religious involvement, mission trips to Mexico, hanging out in a right church, involved in youth activities, or going to summer camps can transform your heart. It is only, remember what Paul said back in our text, in Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, that is the new creation. In Christ. So, quickly, your inventory. You pen it? it? Do you mourn over your sins? Two, do you have an overwhelming obsession for what is right? Three, are you submitted to divine authority? Listen, or do you argue with him? Or debate him? You read it, it says it, and you're like, well, but. This is like the article I read. That won't work in Western culture. Really? You may want to reconsider that. It works fine in heaven. Are you obedient to that divine authority? And fifthly, Is your number one love, okay, God and other people? Aren't you glad we did this? Penitent, desire for righteousness, submission to divine authority, obedient to that authority, and love for the Lord and other people. And you know what? All of that that is internal here, We see. Or do we? Or do we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the challenge for my brother Paul. Even in this church that he loved so desperately that he penned four letters to them. And all the time that he spent there loving these people. Father, help each of us. Maybe even on a moment by moment basis. Take inventory. And see if we are penitent. See if we have a desire for what is right. Do we have submission to divine authority? Are we obedient to that authority? And love for you, Lord, would grow with every breath you grace each and every one of us. And that love would pour out to other people. Thank you, my King. Thank you, my Lord. In Christ's name, amen.